0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
0: Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app if you download the iHeartRadio app and type in 1065 ELMNTFM or 957 ELMNTFM. You can take us with you anywhere you go. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show and I guess I should say welcome back to the show. We've had Matthew Bisson on the show before. If that name sounds familiar, it is because Matthew is our station man manager in the Ottawa station at 95.7 E-L-M-N-T-F-M. tfm And so uh, it's great to have him back on the show because uh, it's always a pleasure to have people uh, on the station, That we don't always get a chance to talk to, but in light of situations that have developed, as everyone is familiar with, uh, having to do with Kamloops, with the 215 uh, unmarked and mass grave that was found there, uh, as well as recent developments uh, that we heard about just the other day. Uh, Coming out of Saskatchewan and the Cowessess First Nation and those unmarked graves of over 750, these are just two of the communities that we've heard about. This is going to continue as we hear more and more about these communities that start to do their own research and start to look into this uh, situation having to do with residential schools right across the country. So we wanted to do a a check in with people at the station uh, who have indigenous backgrounds and try to get their sense of how they're feeling about this, because this is a very personal thing. So, Matthew, welcome to the
1: show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back, David. It's a, a, not a great topic to have to discuss, but uh, I think it's all great that we're able to come together and sort of have these discussions because it certainly has been, I think, a very heavy time for all Indigenous people across Turtle Island over these last few weeks.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, having said that, I keep thinking that it should be a heavy time for everyone, not just yes. Indigenous people, but everybody should be feeling this. I'm not sure if everyone is, in you know, feeling it the same way, but... This is, as I've heard, and as we heard uh, mentioned, I think, in the news uh, reels yesterday, this is not just an Indigenous story. It's not just a residential school story.
1: It is a Canadian story. This is part of Canadian history. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think for me, that speaks to, you know, I think the main question is sort of like, how are you feeling? And to mm-hmm. me, it's a real mixed feelings it's mm. it's a real mixed bag and it's can be sort of almost hard to explain and the point you just made that it is not just for indigenous people to carry it's very much for non-indigenous people in Canada to carry um you know settlers uh, colonizers kind of thing it's it's very much part of their history as well and so for me the sort of mix of feelings involves just that and I feel like there are some positives and that I think This is getting more attention now than, at least in my lifetime, it ever has before. Mm. And so it's uplifting to see some people really coming forward as allies and uh, pledging to look into the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and do what they can to implement them. Um, Even if it's just sharing some content on social media and showing their support for Indigenous people, that's very uplifting. It's really great to see. I think, on the other hand, though, it is also just a lot you and I obviously are both news anchors on our stations as well. We both do the mm-hmm. afternoon news uh, in our respective markets. So it's also just a lot to just be talking about this this often and, yep. um, you know, having updates in the news every day. It's our jobs. We've done this for a while. I know you've worked in news for quite some time and I've been doing radio news for many years as well. We often have to, unfortunately, tell some bad stories. Um, but I find others, for me personally, are easier to somewhat just, okay, my shift's over. I can move on. I'll, you know, and I'll move on and I'll live my life and I, I will be too affected by that. But this is definitely, I think, a time that has been perhaps the most challenging for me uh, being a news broadcaster is just having to tell these stories and then sort of feel the weight of them, mm. not even necessarily as soon as the last newscast for the day is done, but sort of beyond that as well. And then I think going back to the support that I think has come from people across Canada, again, I think that's a positive thing. People are talking about this, people are pushing for change. At the same time, I can't help but have a little bit of cynicism myself in that. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission issued its final report with its calls to action approximately five years ago. We knew about, uh, you know, a confirmed uh, roughly 4,000 children who never came home from residential schools. And so I don't it's just it's hard for me to process the fact that the issue of that report and all the information we had there, that that didn't uh, generate the same kind of support and outcry and people demanding action even one i think one of the first stories i covered here in ottawa was they unveiled a banner at the uh, museum of civilization which is just across the water over in gatineau from ottawa mm. they uh, unveiled the banner of the names of the known people the known mm. children who died at residential schools just the ones that of course they have a record that they passed away and again that that banner is you know over 3000 names strong and even just something like that you know why didn't that get more attention why didn't that push people to call for change and things like that. So it's a real sort of mix of feelings. And I think just as I said earlier, for me, it's just, I guess, the general description I give to it is that it's a very heavy time, I feel. It is. I I feel that weight
0: as well. And, and, you know, you mentioned the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, five years ago. and, And why hasn't it you know, sort of uh, had more attention. But I guess the it, sometimes it takes time for that information. I mean, people have been working on that truth and, you know, reconciliation. People have been implementing things. And you and I have both heard that that uh, even from talking to organizations, some of the interviews, interviews that I've done over the years here on Element FM, I have heard from uh, people like lawyers in Alberta. Uh, there's a, a you know a, an overseeing body uh, that has started to implement some of those things to get lawyers up to speed on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the calls to action, and and so there has been work being done, but this galvanization that we are seeing is is now because okay we can no longer ignore this this these mm-hmm. these this grave these grave sites are now a reality, and I think that we've heard this is a wake up call for canada you know the I heard this uh mentioned
1: yesterday about how these were concentration camps mm-hmm Yeah, I actually was really buoyed by some of the comments uh, from uh, Chief uh, Cabinet DeLorme Mm -hmm. who talked about that this is a crime scene, Mm -hmm. that, you know, it is a crime to deface or remove headstones in Canada. So we're treating this as a crime scene. And that's just it. And I've actually seen or heard comments from other Indigenous leaders suggesting that, some of the staff, not maybe a lot, but some of the staff, some of the nuns or some of the priests that worked at some of these residential schools are still alive. Mm -hmm. And should they not be held criminally responsible for this and Mm -hmm. whether it's going to go there? I I don't know, but, I don't understand why you would not, you know, these yeah. were crimes against humanity, as you mentioned, yeah. genocide, yeah. and people need to be held accountable for this. And I think that's something that Indigenous people are looking for as well. Um, you mentioned the intergenerational trauma, and absolutely, I think that's one thing that I think is probably perhaps the most difficult for non-Indigenous people to understand how the effects are still being felt today. And um, myself, my grandmother went to a residential school, she was taken to the Spanish residential school. Mm. Um, you might have seen a video of our very own Cody Coyote who that's it turns out that's actually where some of his ancestors were taken as well and mm. he recently went to sort of the remains of the building and filmed this really powerful video there but um, you feel that intergenerational trauma she certainly had problems later in her life then that was passed on to my dad and you mm. know his siblings my yeah. uncles and aunts and then you know we certainly had some, some hardships for us like growing up as well and I would definitely say that for me I feel that I come from a lot of privilege and that I think the effects of the intergenerational trauma myself have been minimal. I've seen other family members that it's been much worse, the effects on mental health and, and physical health as well. So you really see that. I think that's the hardest thing for people to understand. One thing that's been interesting for me in, in this conversation, obviously – coming about more. And I certainly regret having not really talked to my grandma about her experience at these schools. I think it's one of those things you think, oh, she probably doesn't want to talk about this. So maybe I shouldn't ask about this, but I, when she was still alive, I was basically just too young and foolish to, mm. you know, make that a priority to have that conversation and talk mm. to her more about her, her upbringing and her, you know, her, her youth and things like that. But I've certainly had some positive conversations with my brother and my mom and some other family members uh, over these last few weeks is of course, this is so much in the national spotlight and it's really difficult to hear but you know i think obviously the aim of these residential schools beyond the genocide was also just to basically the cultural genocide aspects to make indigenous people give up their languages give up their cultural practices give up their traditional ways and just adopt you know european basically values and 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 trades and things Mm -hmm. like that and basically it's kind of tough to say and i don't mean to be disrespectful but what they're desired outcome was really actually worked on my grandma. She mm. actually, when my mom told me that she did talk to my grandma about this and that my grandma and her actually went on a road trip to the school in Spanish. And she said, you know what? I I, I didn't mind it here. I made some good friends here. I know bad things happen to some people, but I didn't mind it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things like she became a devout follower of the church. Mm-hmm. You know, we growing up didn't really go to church too often, but when we would go to Chiging First Nation, um, that's where she's from if we were there on a sunday we were going to church for sure because mm-hmm. you know it became a part of her life so in that way again it kind of worked if you will mm-hmm. um and then my brother told me this really heart-wrenching story that he had a chance to talk to uh, some of her siblings and that one of her siblings said that uh, she really did kind of give up the cultural practices as well. And that, you know, my grandmother was very involved in the community and went to a lot of events and, you know, prepared food, things like that. But she, uh, one of our, one of her sisters, one of my dad's aunts um, quoted my grandmother as saying something along the lines of if there was going to be an event where there would be traditional practices like smudging things like that that my grandmother refused to go and she referred to it as witchcraft Mm which that to me was just so heart-wrenching to hear because that's almost to me verbatim mm-hmm. what they were likely told at these yep. schools. Yeah. So yeah, I think you raise a good point that the intergenerational trauma is just the difficult part about this to measure, which I think some people, some non-Indigenous people, they want to very specifically like, explain this to me. Like, how does this work? And it's it's just not that simple. It's complicated. But as you said, absolutely. It's being felt by generations to this day. Um. You know, there's, discussions along the fact that it's going to take seven generations for us mm-hmm. to fully heal from this yeah. and and whatnot sort of thing. So that I think is an aspect of these schools that mm. it's just, again, it's hard to quantify, hard to qualify, but yeah. It's something that will still be uh, felt by Indigenous people for many years to come. You, you know, the fact that you said
0: your grandmother reiterated some stories that she said, I had an okay time here. We've heard some stories like that. But yeah. that, that of course, does not in any way mitigate what, what these schools were set up to do. And like you said, in many cases succeeded, whether completely or in part. It was done forcibly, not by choice, to make sure that that this was implemented uh, against the
1: Indigenous uh, kids and Indigenous populations of Canada. Absolutely. And I think there's also something to be said. And again, I I unfortunately never really had these conversations directly with my grandmother, but that perhaps blocking out... Some of the terrible aspects of this and trying to just focus on the, oh, I made some friends there kind of thing. I wonder how much of that is a factor when you do talk to some survivors who, you know, maybe think of it as it wasn't really that bad or my experience wasn't really that bad kind of thing. I wonder perhaps it was that bad, but they just, you know, mentally had to really block that out to try Mm -hmm. to just survive beyond that and just sort of focus on some of these positive things. Again, I don't know for sure, but Mm -hmm. I would suspect that for many people, that was likely the case. Uh, I know you have to talk to some of the other staff members and yep. stuff, so I know we don't have too much time, but I think I would want to point out to me like some other sort of positive things that sort of, you know, have me a little bit more feeling a little bit more uplifted, if you will, and part of it somewhat touches on what you just talked about, that it's great to see so many Indigenous youth now mm. embracing their culture, embracing yep. their heritage, embracing their language, embracing their customs, the current generation of youth, not that obviously it's all on them, there's That's way too much pressure for anyone, but I get a sense that they are going to really further help elevate the culture and celebrate it with pride. And I think that will, I hope, really bring about, you know, just a heightened awareness and a renewed interest in the language, the customs and things like that sort of thing.
0: Matthew, thanks so much for being on the show uh, and, and taking your time to do so. I know you're very busy as the manager of Element FM and 95.7 in Ottawa, so I want to thank you, Chi Miigwech, you know, for doing so. Thank you very much for having me, David. Miigwech. Okay, talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Matthew Bisson. He is the station manager for Element FM in Ottawa at 95.7, and it has been a pleasure to talk to him about the issues that are currently in the news, having to do with uh, with Kamloops, as well as the Cowessess First Nation that we just heard about. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth.
2: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
0: FM. All right. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. Type in our coordinates and... Take us with you anywhere you go. Listen anywhere you want. My guest here on the show is my fellow afternoon DJ, Mr. Julian Taylor. It's a pleasure to have him on the show. It's always nice to be able to talk to Julian outside of the the, the working schedule that we have. And uh, just share some thoughts. Now, one of the things we're doing here on the Moment of Truth show today is talking to staff here at Element FM, the Indigenous people who work here at the station, to try and get a sense of things that, that... have of late been happening specifically with the Cowessess First Nation and uh, Kamloops, BC, and trying to check in with people to see how they're feeling. And we are put on into a situation sometimes where we have to conform to what our station requires, what our job requires, and we can't necessarily say what's really on our mind. So Julian uh, Sego, and welcome to the show.
2: Sego, how are you?
0: I'm I'm okay, Julian. You know. Um, I don't know about you, but it's been difficult to listen to what's been going on and to hear and see some of the stuff that is being talked about online.
2: I agree. Um, It's been a tough couple of weeks, especially for the Indigenous community uh, and the Canadian population at large, really, uh, because I think that, you know, I was speaking to my mom, whose uh, family is Mohawk, which Mm. makes me her family, uh, mm-hmm. about this. And, you know, it's what Buffy St. Marie said. It's not a real surprise to anybody who's Indigenous. We mm-hmm. knew that this was the case, that this was part of Canada's history. Mm-hmm. While the rest of the country uh, may not have been aware of it, it becomes t- to be uh, quite a shock. Now, when I say that, it uh, that it's not a shock to the Indigenous community, it's still a... Uh, it opens a lot of wounds. It opens wounds that are a century old, uh, that have caused the indigenous community so much harm that it's destroyed families, uh, and lives as we, as we know, li- the lives of children lost, uh, certainly that trickles down to, uh, the families where, you know, mum or uh, a father or a grandparent have lost their, their kin. Uh, and that's, that's the way you, uh, you know, orchestrate genocide mm. is by dividing and conquering. That is the uh, one of the definitions of, of, of what genocide is all about. Now, you and I both know that in South Africa, the uh, apartheid system was pretty much based on the uh, indigenous uh, system here in mm-hmm. Canada that the Canadian government had orchestrated yep. with the residential schools and the Indian Act. And uh, not a lot of people may know that. But now let's get to the point where um, the way people are saying we should cancel Canada Day. And I don't think that we should cancel Canada Day. You know, John Tory mentioned that Dundas Street should be renamed. Mm -hmm. And that by renaming it, it is actually not cancelling history. You know, and I agree with him there. I think that uh, there are people across this nation uh, that really feel strongly about uh, canada day and i feel that what needs to happen this canada today is that a huge acknowledgement has to be made that the history of canada that people have been taught through school and through the rest of their lives is false it is wrong yeah. it is biased and it is the history told from uh white men's textbooks
0: mm-hmm.
2: and we have to abolish that or not abolish that we need to uh change it so it reflects the history of all the people here. Now, when I think about Canada and I think about the Indigenous communities now, I look at my life and I say, you know, I am fortunate to have received an education. I am fortunate to uh, be employed. I'm in, I I think what I would like to see happen is the country uh, accept and learn and really uh, attempt to reconciliate with The indigenous communities, and not only the indigenous communities, I I mean you know, all marginalized communities here in this country are part of this country. It is not just uh, a country that was made of of European descendants, okay? So, um, there are people who have come to this country immigrants who have come to this country who found great opportunity here uh, who may not have have any idea of this dark history that Canada uh, has. Those people, uh, I would say, you know, are are allies in many ways because they have felt the same uh, about their lives and their pe- previous uh, location. Do you know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I th- I think that what I you know what I would love to see happen I would love to see uh, the church either be per- persecuted or or maybe taxed from like. You know, retroactive taxes to the church from inception because there's billions of dollars there, if that's the case. And that money be used to uh, help rebuild the indigenous communities here, for sure. Uh, You know, languages is a big thing. Um, Culture, help reinstate and rebuild that for the indigenous community because they they owe us that for damn sure. And I think that, you know, that goes uh, for the slave trade, for all of these things. Mm. Um, the church has gotten away with murder, and uh, there is no pun intended in that.
0: Mm-hmm. The the Canadian public may have been somewhat ignorant of this, but there has been this talk going on for a long time about the residential schools and about what they did, and the fact that children went missing. That that's been reported in the news before, but to now have these these mass graves. Uh, you know actually fact this is now well, fact
2: yeah it, it goes down to that ideology where uh, you know in the court of law you're innocent until proven guilty well now mm-hmm. there is evidence mm-hmm. hard cold evidence right. for the canadian population who didn't really believe to digest no, whether how hard it may be mm-hmm. yeah that's what's changed
0: And do you you get a sense that this may actually be the change that was unfortunately necessary to wake up Canada to this?
2: You know what, David? I have this feeling that, uh, you know, okay, let's look at it this way. The answer is yes, but I think it goes even further than that. I think that in order for the human race, to actually survive, that we need to go back to our ancient teachings. I believe that these spirit voices that were buried are now a wake-up call and a reminder to tell everybody to please listen. It is not the only reminder. When you look at what's happening around the Mm -hmm. planet, Mm -hmm. it's on fire, Mm -hmm. and there's a pandemic sweeping through Mm -hmm. every country country and mm-hmm. continent mm-hmm. if we don't wake up and i believe those ancient teachings are within you know the languages of people lost and forgotten i believe those ancient teachings are, are teachings that are spiritual teachings that all indigenous people across the globe long before you know uh colon- c- colonialism came into the the forefront where we were balanced with the natural world is where we need to head in order for this entire human race the inheritance of this entire planet, which is my belief is everybody on it to survive.
0: Mm. I, 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 agree, you know, with many of the interviews that I do here on the show, talking about the climate crisis, climate change, and, and some of the things that are going on or that need to happen. Uh, People that are writing books on how we can, uh, you know, turn a page towards, uh, you know, uh, dealing with the the climate crisis that we find ourselves in, it is exactly from what I understand, and I say this quite often in interviews, is it's going, it is going back to those traditional teachings that indigenous uh, people had for living light on the land and and living in harmony with the planet. That's really kind of what you're saying to some degrees is is where... It was where it needs to go back to if we are going to, like you said, find a way to survive on this planet because of all the things that you you mentioned. Uh, The world is in this pandemic. Uh, The world is on fire. I mean, look at uh, what's going on with weather. Just uh, it's unprecedented out in the the northwest right now with temperatures and and things like that. And not only the temperature is going up, but imagine what that's going to do to the Earth, It's going to dry it out, and the, the West Coast, you know, has, has all this ancient forest and these, the, you know, can ignite fires very quickly, and they can burn out of control. So we'll have to keep an eye on, on what, you know, if, if that happens as well in the next little while because of this weather that's uh, out on the West Coast and, and what's happening there.
2: I agree. Uh, spirit voices are, are, are meant to be listened to. These unmarked graves that have been uncovered are a reminder of that. Mm. I look at it uh, in terms of, uh, of, of in horror and mm. dismay, mm. yet the way that I was brought up was to be uh, always looking for the answers that the universe is providing for us, the mm. obvious one. Mm.
0: You know, Julian, with your talking about uh, spirit voices and things, I did hear... Um, uh, an, uh, someone in, in a news report or in a, somewhere in the last couple of days about um, an elder who said, maybe now they will listen. And it ties right in with what you were just saying. He said, maybe now they will listen because it, it's the dead that is speaking.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah.
0: 100%. Yeah. Well, you know, and we may not have heard the the last of this. you know, all these communities and first nations uh and and, and uh across Canada are starting to do their own research now into
2: we're going to see a lot more of this yeah. and and you and I both know that yep. it's going to get more horrific uh than uh most people actually think mm-hmm.
0: and it's and it has uh, put a, an international eye on Canada. For sure, yeah,
2: yeah, not a good one either.
0: No, but maybe you know, maybe that unfortunately is a good thing. It is that wake-up call for Canada that has always looked at itself as (laughs) this this wonderful country, welcoming country for people, uh, and and now it's it's got some reckoning to do, and 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 you know, rightfully so. And let's hope that it does, uh, because we can all learn from this. We can all move forward. And, and if everyone is willing, uh, we, can, we can go in the right direction to heal this.
2: I agree. Um, but it is recognition and education that is so important here um, and allowing the Indigenous community space and time to grieve. Yeah. And, you know, take the time to grieve with them. This is Everybody has children, and mm-hmm. the reality is when, it's, when it comes down to children – no matter where what's happened to them, uh, they do feel like family because they are the representation of our future. Mm-hmm. So any parent, mm-hmm. you don't even have to be a parent to recognize that right. and feel that.
0: Yeah. Yep very true uh Julian, I know you have to get going but I want to thank you uh, and say uh, now and Jimmy Gwech to to for coming onto the show first of all but I also want to say congratulations to you you know you've you've had a great year musically we talked about that earlier and uh, you've had some wonderful nominations you've had great recognition for the, the ridge you know it's so nice to see that for you uh, and what's happening and now you've been long listed uh, for the players prize so congratulations man that that's so so yes. wonderful
2: <laughs> I can't believe it, you know? (laughs) I guess I should, you know? I guess I should believe it.
0: (laughs) So, listen, we're rooting for you, and, uh, you know, Fabulous album. Everybody should uh, check out The Ridge if you haven't done so right now. Uh, some beautiful music there by uh, Julian Taylor. It's a pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, we, of course, uh, share the afternoon drive as the cruise uh, with Julian and myself, and uh, but we don't always get a chance to talk on air together. So, Julian, thanks again, and uh, all the best, man.
2: Thanks, brother. You too. I appreciate chatting with you.
0: You bet. Okay, take care. That's Julian Taylor, afternoon drive cruise host, and uh, also Musician Extraordinaire, long-listed for the Players Prize. Can you believe it? That's great. Congratulations, Julian. All right, don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
0: Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also download the iHeartRadio app and listen anywhere you go. If you type in one of those two coordinates, you're welcome to listen anywhere. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show... Alison Daniel, she's a PhD candidate in Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto. I'm going to be talking with her about an article she authored in the conversation entitled Nutritional Researchers Saw Malnourished Children at Indian Residential Schools as Perfect Test Subjects. Now, she's also a journalist in the Certificate in Health Impact Program at U of T. Her doctoral research focuses on children with severe acute malnutrition in hospital settings. She is based mostly in Toronto, but also part time in Malawi, Africa, a landlocked uh, nation in Africa, there. Exactly. So, just a little bit more on that. Um, you're part time there. Do you travel there often or?
3: Yeah, so um, before the COVID pandemic, I was spending about half of my time based in Blantyre, Malawi, Mm -hmm. which is one of the largest cities in the country. Mm -hmm. And I was conducting research at quite a big hospital there, looking at the effects of malnutrition and infection on children's growth and development.
0: Why is that area particularly um, advantageous for the kind of work that you're doing?
3: Unfortunately, Malawi is quite a, a poor nation um, and therefore there's quite a high rate of malnutrition across the country, mm. including in Blantyre where where I was based mm-hmm. before COVID. Um, in addition to that, there's a research site that's set up and is affiliated with the University of Malawi. So it's really an excellent place to collaborate with researchers in country.
0: Mm. Now how is the work that you're doing and what are the kind of tests that you're doing or what is the research that you're doing there? I guess why I'm asking that is because, um, you know, we're going to be talking about, uh, about, about how uh, residential schools saw these in, in, in malnourished children in Indian residential schools as, as perfect subjects. Are you trying to improve the lives or is it just research that you're focusing on to see what is happening?
3: Yeah. So I think that's a great question and intro to the article that we'll talk about a bit later. Mm. Um, But basically my research focuses on children who have been admitted to a hospital because they have malnutrition and an illness. Uh, We essentially first provide care to these children, Mm. which means clinical or medical care. Mm -hmm. In addition to um, providing them nutritional supplements, Mm while they're in the hospital and when they leave the hospital. Mm. So that's really the the first priority when a child comes into the hospital is give them the care that they need. Right. In addition to that, we also approach some children, um, excluding ones that are too sick to participate in research. So we um, speak with their caregivers who are mainly mothers and obtain informed consent to study how well these children do after they leave the hospital and are given nutritional care. In addition to that, we were testing an intervention for mothers uh, in which mothers were taught by nurses about how to feed their children and take care of their children after leaving the hospital. So there's quite a big component uh, on trying to improve outcomes in children outside of the hospital setting once they've gone home. In terms of what we were studying in these children, uh, we looked at how well they grow six months after leaving the hospital. So we looked at Mm. their weight and their height. Mm. In addition to that, we did an assessment of their development. So that could mean their motor development. So how well they're moving and, and doing tasks that involve muscles or hand motions or so on. And also um, looking at their cognitive development, so how well they're able to understand and communicate language, for example. Um, but one of the important things is that we try and be very sensitive to the child's needs and caregivers' needs, and everything is completely voluntary.
0: How important is nutrition? I guess why I'm saying that is is how soon can we see the results of of this start to take effect on someone, either improve Im, with improved diet or you know uh, or being denied that kind of thing
3: yeah that's a, a great question so I would say that uh, nutrition is a very very important component um, right now globally malnutrition contributes to almost half of child deaths so we know at a global scale it's incredibly important to consider nutrition. Mm. In terms of an individual child, uh, being malnourished during a time of growth and development can have consequential short-term effects. So that could be, as I just said, a risk of dying, unfortunately, which is increased when there are other factors like disease. But in addition to that, we're finding out more and more that children who have been malnourished struggle in terms of uh, achieving academic performance and going through school uh, as timely as they would, uh, or as timely as non-malnourished children. In the long term, malnour- or people who have been malnourished as children often don't make as much money. Uh, this is mostly important in low-resource settings mm-hmm. like Malawi, where I do research. Right. But one of the other things that we've been finding out lately is that. Being undernourished as a child uh, can often have long-term effects into adulthood um, in terms of what we call non-communicable diseases. So these are things like obesity, type 2 diabetes, and so on. Mm. So that's one of, the, one of the things that is definitely on people's minds in the nutrition world right now.
0: Mm. When you say that, it makes me think of the long-term effects.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So essentially malnutrition uh, in a child really sets them up for for challenges um, throughout their childhood and beyond that as Mm. well.
0: Do we have any idea of how these... Th- this malnourishment can affect things intergenerationally, um, from adult to child, etc., much like we have talked about with residential schools and the intergenerational effects of the schools themselves?
3: Yeah, that, that's another great question. And it's really an emerging area of research in, the, in nutrition. Mm. Um, but what has recently been uncovered is that Um, being malnourished as a child or even in utero. So um, a a pregnant mother who's malnourished, their child will be born um, kind of essentially knowing how to, to store fat and to Mm. adapt to a very deficient environment. And that can actually change, um, change your genetics in a way that, Later in life makes you more susceptible to things like diabetes. Mm. And we're seeing that this can be potentially passed on uh, to other generations, which is something that i'm I'm very concerned about, um, especially when thinking about the the intergenerational effects of residential schools. Intergenerational trauma is one aspect of that, but also the the potential, nutritional problems that that will persist
0: right now your article in the conversation as i mentioned off the top it's entitled nutritional researchers saw malnourished children at indian residential schools as perfect test subjects now, you, you start off the article, first of all, by acknowledging Kamloops and Cowasis uh, where we, of course, have seen these uh, mass graves that have been found and, and unmarked graves that have now come into the news. And you go on to, to uh, put a call out to colleagues and others to uh, start uh, speaking up and, and uh, non-Indigenous people to, to speak up as well.
3: Yeah. And I I really felt compelled to write this article right now in light of the recent news. Mm. Um, In fact, it it felt like the least I could do.
2: Mm.
3: I I think it's really important for nutrition researchers to consider the history and uh, many researchers are also involved in um, studies in indigenous communities now. Mm -hmm. And I think that it requires an understanding of, of the kind of legacy that these these studies at residential schools have caused. But beyond the the nutrition research bubble, uh, I also felt it was important as a settler Canadian to really call on my peers and, and start to do some of the heavy lifting mm. that Indigenous communities and people have been doing for so long.
0: You, you give credit, of course, to Ian Mosby, the historian and in food uh, indigenous health expert that that talks about this and brought some of this forward in some of his uh, information. How long have you been aware of this kind of information from residential schools yourself?
3: yeah so i um, I have an undergraduate degree as well in nutrition from the University of british columbia okay. and i'm I'm quite fortunate that one of my professors there brought up this this horrible story about the experiments mm. in residential schools. But I, I'm actually not convinced that all of my colleagues in nutrition were aware of this until mm. recently. Mm. Um another way that um or another means of, of informing researchers about these experiments is through an ethics certification that Canadian researchers have to have to complete. There is actually a module now on these nutrition experiments, uh, which I think is is excellent. I think that's a great opportunity to teach researchers about these experiments. But at the same time, uh, I think it could be considered a formality and I'm not sure it goes deep enough in, in telling people what the history has mm-hmm. been.
0: You know, one of the things that really shocked me to learn about the experiments that were being um, put in place in residential schools uh, for these children with, without consent, as as pointed out, um, is that uh, the government, as well as many big uh, companies, were behind this research.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that, I guess by now shouldn't be shocking, but uh, one of the things that, is important to note is that the federal government was aware of the poor conditions in res- residential schools. They were aware of, of the high malnutrition rates in these schools, as well as in Indigenous communities. And knowing this, still approved these experiments on malnourished children.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it's tough to uh, still hear, you know, it's still tough to hear that this willingness took place in, you know, th- this country uh, called Canada because it sounds um it sounds so much like uh you know the concentration camps of the Second World War when you hear this stuff about the this stuff that went on um and what was perpetrated against the the Jewish population in, in, you know in these in, in these concentration camps.
3: Yeah, I really think that there isn't much difference uh, in terms of what was done during the Holocaust on, as you pointed out, uh, Jewish and other uh, populations Mm. in concentration camps. Um, I mean, this is, it's absolutely heartbreaking to think of what went on in residential schools, specifically on children, Mm. that that's something I just, I just can't fathom. And I, I also do want to highlight one of the parts of my article that I, I wrote, in which I talked about the the development of the Nuremberg Code yeah. in nineteen forty seven, uh, which came out of the or it was part of the aftermath of the of these experiments during the Holocaust and laid out the ground rules in, in saying that voluntary consent is necessary. Uh, to do research and experiments have to avoid unnecessary harms. And that was the same year that many of these nutrition experiments at residential schools were started.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it, 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 It makes you wonder. Uh, it really makes you wonder. Before we go further, you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the show is Alison Al- Daniel. She is a PhD candidate in Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto. We're talking to her about her article she authored in The Conversation Entitled Nutrition Researchers Saw Malnourished Children at Indian Residential Schools as Perfect Test Subjects. Now... Alison, you point out also, because, uh, again, going back to Ian Mosby, um, you know, this information isn't new. It's been out for a while. Ian brought this out uh, a number of years ago, 2006 or so. Or, and, and you know, it was talked about and raised attention there. But, but do you think this information amongst people like yourselves, your, your peers and colleagues... Um, Will the, do you think there will be a, a different approach to knowing or 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 hearing this information now?
3: i I absolutely hope so i I think it's it's devastating that um, Ian Mosby um, he published his research. It made the mainstream media in 2013. People were well aware of what took place in terms of the malnutrition and experiments and nothing was really done after that Um, in terms of, of uh, the federal government and others, um, the Catholic church and so on actually owning up to this and acknowledging it and doing something about it. So I, I hope that with with I think what I would call momentum now that, that something will be done, that apologies will be issued and a whole lot more than that. That's, that's really just a starting place.
0: Right. Um, now you mentioned the Nuremberg code in 1947, uh, again, which states that voluntary consent for research is absolutely essential and that experiments should avoid unnecessary mental and physical suffering. Uh, you know when you hear those words um and then we know about what was taking place at that same time uh it it really makes you wonder what people were thinking <laughs> like they were this was being done deliberately uh and, and it really makes you wonder what they they must have oh, gee i don't know i i you know there's too much to go you could go so far down this rabbit hole couldn't you
3: yeah, I, I mean, I think that several of these researchers have tried to justify uh, these experiments and, and use the guise that they're actually trying to learn about Indigenous people and, and then subsequently do something to improve their health. I, my feeling is that there's no excuse, nothing good came from this, and the Nuremberg Code should have been listened to. There are some some theories about why these researchers... Like Lionel Pet, um, for example, didn't actually listen to the code at all. One being that it might not have made um, enough of a, a stir across the world outside of Europe. I, I'm not sure that's true. Um, another another reason um, was that these researchers might have thought they were more sophisticated than mm. than those doing biomedical experiments in, in concentration camps, mm. which is completely unacceptable and is right. evidently a colonial mentality.
0: Right. Now, the idea, of course, as you mentioned also in your article about, about what you just said, the idea of, of helping. This was meant to help Indigenous people. Uh, it was sort of an underhanded way of maybe helping, wasn't it? Because the idea was that, if we improve the health of uh, indigenous people, thereby not uh, by not passing along diseases to non-indigenous people, then that's better for the country.
3: Yeah, I think that one of the reasons that the federal government approved these experiments was that they thought that you know this would be beneficial um, to other Canadians' health and also would make indigenous people more valuable in terms of contributing to the economy. Um, But Mm. I think to then, you know, do an experiment where you intentionally starve children for two years. I I, I don't see how that adds up. I think it was really just a a guise to, Mm. Mm. to get some of these nutrition experiments underway without the intent of ever actually helping Mm. these populations or children.
0: Right. So when you, when you see, and read about the kind of thing that went on at residential schools and uh, the kind of work that you are, are doing now uh, in, in the line of work that you do and also in uh, Malawi. Um, w- what similarities do you see coming out of the, that?
3: Well, one of the things I, I will say is that malnutrition equals suffering. Mm. And I think even though the context is quite Different. I I really do understand how horrendous this must have been for for these children and and for their families and and so on. So, I I mean, if to me it's just heartbreaking to think of instead of seeing a malnourished child and and doing something to address this significant problem, actually making it worse. I, I just again, I can't fathom that.
0: Right. I guess the other thing to consider about this is we're we're talking about specific experiments that were done specifically uh for the point of experimentation, but uh we know that that the diets that the children were being fed in these schools were not the best in general. Just you know, the kind of food that they were being given was limited, and it was uh, it was not a full diet. Uh, you know, many times I believe the the children had to go out and and work in the fields to plant the foods that other people were eating, and they weren't not necessarily getting a, a advantage of themselves, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Yeah, that's correct. So I, I there are a couple justifications for for um, not providing traditional foods, quote unquote, in residential schools. One of them being that there was a theory that there was likely to be a natural transition from traditional foods to foods that would be bought in a store. Um, So some of the researchers thought that by giving less traditional foods or store-bought foods within residential schools, it would help Indigenous people adapt. But we know that this is just a form of assimilation. So I I think that's the bottom line there, that it was a way of making it easier to assimilate children.
0: And I think you also point out something about the traditional diets that Indigenous people had. Um, that that they were referred to as as not as uh, as healthy, uh, and and of course that's not true. But it makes you wonder about what these nutritionalists were actually knew about their own line of work to say something like that. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a good point as well. Um, in the 1940s and 50s, when these experiments were being done nutrition with research and practice was really on the rise mm. um, and I, I do think it's true that probably the 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 field wasn't evolved enough to fully comprehend um what what a child's nutritional needs were but I, again there's there's no justification in in how this is approached or um or Taking away traditional foods, which is again a means of of cultural genocide.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and this is just one thing we're referring to. This is just one little aspect of the residential school system that we are talking about—the nutrition side of things. Not not everything else that was going on there at the same time. Uh, their, their physical treatment, their environments that they were put into, uh, the abuse that they took, all of those other impacts that had on that you know, these people had put upon them as well.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I I do want to kind of go back to what um, I was talking about earlier with what my research is on and, and how we're focused a lot on how nutrition uh, impacts growth and development. But we're also looking at how other ingredients in a child's environment can improve their outcomes. And one of those is minimizing physical and emotional harms and improving care practices and, um, a mother's attentiveness to the child and so on. And that, that was completely taken away in these residential schools and it does have harmful effects. Um, so as you said, these nutrition experiments are just, this is just one component. Um, and I, I felt it was an important story to raise, but it's just one piece of the puzzle here.
0: Yes, indeed. And um, I'm sure that we'll be hearing much more about these kind of stories in the future, given the fact that many First Nation communities are now going through the process of doing the research to uh, find uh, to find and, and look for unmarked graves in their communities where residential schools were either located or located close by. Um, we know that that uh, First Nation uh, communities and people have been talking about this for many many years, um, and uh, and now. We are getting to see the actual facts uh, from this this kind of radar, uh, ground penetrating radar that is uh, actually showing up these uh, these, these graves in, in there. And it makes you wonder, you know, going back to your article and, and what the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission has said about uh, children um, that were in residential schools, that most and the main causes of death uh, were physical harm, malnutrition, illness and neglect and of course i guess if you're malnourished then you're more susceptible to illness to begin with
3: exactly and i i think that malnutrition was likely a huge contributor to deaths in in residential schools um which is is just tragic
0: mm. mm-hmm. you know this uh, unfortunate uh situation that took place at residential schools. I want to thank you for for the article and bringing this forward once again even though it has uh, as I, as we have said it's not new information but certainly needs to be brought back up and the challenges that you bring forward to ask uh, people and peers of yours to uh, start recognizing and understand the, the harms that took place and to recognize this and the, and the long-term effects that uh, it has had on Indigenous people, intergenerational uh, complications that have been handed down from this and, and other things uh, as we it, try to come to terms with this uh, in Canada. So I want to th- say thank you for joining me on the show
3: Thank you so much for having me, David. I, I truly appreciate it.
0: You bet. And uh, take care. Hopefully, uh, you know, if there's further information that comes forward, we can have you back on the show.
3: Absolutely. Thanks again.
0: Okay. You take care. You too. Right. right. Bye-bye.
3: And that is Allison
0: Daniel. She is a PhD candidate at nutritional sciences at the University of Toronto. We've been talking to her about her article in the conversation. Nutrition researchers saw malnourished children at Indian residential schools as perfect test subjects. You can find that on the conversation online. Now, if any of this information today you have found triggering, you can call uh, twenty-four hours a day the Indian Residential School Crisis Line at one 866 9254419 and that is moment of truth for today i'm your host david moses thank you for listening to the show each and every day we'll see you again tomorrow this has been moment of truth
2: with david moses element 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 fm